It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. If you're a guest here with us, we're glad that you're here. If you have little ones up to grade four and you'd like for them to be dismissed downstairs to Children's Church, you can do that or you can keep them right there with you. Busy day today, lots of things going on. You can check your bulletin for all that's happening around here after church and during church. A special thank you to all who came to the fall workday. It was a large group and I'm so grateful for you. Um, what a blessing it was to see all the stuff that was able to get done. And so thank you again for giving up part of your Saturday. Uh, many hands made a lot of light work, and so we're grateful for you. Thank you for working inside, outside, all that uh, went on. As you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I remind you, of course, that this is not the only time that you should have been in the Word this week. If you've come here today without being in the Word, you're starving this morning. Of course, your spirit recognizes that over time, that uh, you have to take in the Word of God on a regular basis this word was made for you. Uh, it was made for your daily uh, supplement. And so I, my desire for you, my uh, prayer for you, is that you find time each day to be in the word. You can uh, find that on whatever electronic device you're reading. You can find a Bible reading calendar. We can certainly give you a hard copy. There's one on the, on, uh, the welcome table. Find that. Read through the Bible year by year. All the blessing that comes from uh, the richness of the reading of the word will be yours. You begin to uh, really develop an understanding of the word comprehensively, which is what the Lord would desire for you, that you can understand the, the, the will of the Lord. His Holy Spirit has one will. You can know what that is. You can understand, God, how he works. Uh, you also be on your guard against false doctrine because you will have read the true. And so my encouragement, again, is to continue to, um, to do that each day. Also, if you're a guest today, right in front of you in the seat, there is a, uh, there's a guest info card, and it'd be uh, my joy if you would take that if you're, if you're new here today. Fill that out and give that to uh, Grant, if you would, at the table in the back, uh, welcome table, and let him know that you're new. We'd love for you to be together with us on Wednesday for our mid, uh, midweek meal as a guest. And so uh, keep that in mind, if you would. Let us know how we can minister to you, how any information you'd like back from us. It would be our joy to provide that. So we're going to dig in today. It's, uh, this is part of what, what we do, part of what the New Testament uh, church has been doing. Uh, since the first century, is uh, get together to pray, to to give, to uh, to sing, to uh, break down the words that the, the, the Lord has provided for us, and that's what we're going to do, that last part today. One of the great books in the Bible is this letter written by Paul to the church at Corinth, uh, known to us as the book of 2 Corinthians, perhaps one of four original letters, the Lord preserving for us, of course, just two of those. This is a marvelous book because along with... Um, the other letter by the same name, it presents to us what conduct in the church is to look like. So we don't have to guess about many things that are supposed to go on and that are not to go on because it makes it very clear. Many of the obstacles, uh, the unhealthy practices, the thoughts that plague the church in the first century are recycled over and over again in the modern church and throughout the ages. So the letters remain relevant for us and we have titled this series, God's Plan for a Healthy Church. It is his desire that the church be healthy. He knows uh, the things that br uh, bring about its downfall. So he has given us his word through Paul being carried along by the Holy Spirit to know what those things are and what to do about them. And so it's with a lot of anticipation and joy. I tell you this a lot, and I don't want you to think it's just um, platitude, but I look forward to this each week with you, studying it together, and we'll continue to do that. Last time together we finished up our section on insufficiency, a key to being useful to God, and we began to see... Uh, we'll begin a new section today, beginning in chapter 3 and, and verse 6, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 18. As the Apostle Paul deals with uh, all sorts of influences and, uh, that impact the church in this letter, he continues to re reveal his heart. The, the interesting nuance with 2 Corinthians as opposed to 1 is that Paul reveals his heart to the church here in this second letter. After dealing with them very firmly, very directly in 1 Corinthians, he begins to let them see what true gospel ministry looks like and what a gospel minister looks like and how he deals with the different things that he has had to deal with in his life. And, and because we're currently in a continuing study and because no more than 80% of the church congregation is here on any given Sunday, we know that not everyone gets to hear every message. And so each Sunday, uh, also we have guests who come and which we desire to become part of our family here. And it may be that uh, this is the first time that they have heard the Word of God uh, emphasized in this way, and, and they certainly have not been exposed to the series God's Plan for a Healthy Church. And so we take a little time each week, and we touch on what we've been learning because the Bible is interrelated, and our understanding of individual verses 
And I tell you this a lot, but just a reminder, come from our exposure to the Bible as a whole, because the Bible explains the Bible, and as we begin to work our way through it and we become more familiar with it, we'll understand that. And so if you were not here last time, don't worry that you won't be able to understand the verses uh, we've been studying today. As you see, that's a continuing series and not just a number of topical sermons in a row. And just ask God to help you understand what he would have you know about himself today and, and realizing that a lifetime is not enough time to master the words of the text of the word. But each time we study it, we're enriched and we're encouraged. And so as you come today, you know, we, we have expectation that God's going to work in our hearts. We have expectation through doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction to make he, uh, him make us more like he wants us to be. And so we come with that expectation each time we open the Word of God. We don't have to worry that perhaps we haven't been here for the other parts of the study because the Word is sufficient to do what it's sent to do, and we just ask the Lord to do that. And that should be really your habit as you read the Word each day. Lord, what would you have me know about yourself? Uh, what does the, your Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How would that apply to me? And then you just begin to work your way through because true biblical scholarship, beloved, is not how much of the Bible you've memorized. It's not how much perhaps you've been exposed to, how much theology you might be able to recite. True biblical scholarship is taking what you've understood about the Bible and beginning to apply it to your life, okay? Because any other thing is just a Pharisee in modern wrappings. So we want to make sure that we understand what the Bible says and then apply those things that are important uh, for us to know and to understand and to begin to look like. So that's always our prayer, and that is the heart attitude, really, that we should seek anytime we study his words to us. You know, Hebrews 4.12 says, you know, it, it is, uh, the word of God is, is sharp as a two-edged sword, dividing us under the soul and spirit, joint and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when we open the word of God, it discerns our thoughts, our intents. We don't have to worry that it won't, because it was sent to give uh, to do that very thing. So this section we're starting today doesn't stand alone, of course. Um, it's part of a larger section of these letters and other books which explain salvation, and they explain very importantly today, our topic, the glory of the gospel. And so um, as we look at them, we're going to look at the other things, of course, in order to help us understand what we see. This is our introduction really to this new section, so let's read it together if you would. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. It's picking up kind of in the middle of the sentence, and we'll go back in just a few minutes and make sure you understand that other part. But that other part was really the end of, of the summary of of uh, insufficiency, a key to being useful to God. So we're picking up in verse 6. It says, who also? I'll be, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the seats or just read from your copy that you read every day and that you memorize, and I'll just give you verse cues and we'll stay together. So picking up, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory... So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Verse 10. For indeed, what had glory in this case had no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and verse 13, are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not, would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Verse 14. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ, verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, verse 16. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Let's stop right there. As we begin verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, back just a few weeks ago, Paul began to mention this ministry of the gospel that is evidenced in the changed lives of some in the church. In verse 3, look back there if you would, uh, he says this, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And that last part really begins to be our focus. Paul talks about the sufficiency and the power of the gospel 
And uh, back, back in Exodus, God gave his law to his people. We looked at that several weeks ago. He, he wrote to them that law on tablets of stone. They didn't obey it. They couldn't keep it. Their hearts were not transformed. They weren't an example to the nations. The letter that the nations read of Israel was one of chastening and one of the wages of sin. But in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's time, the Lord begins to promise that there will come a day when he says in Ezekiel or Jeremiah 31, 33, he says, I will put my law within them, within their heart, I'll write it. And then Ezekiel 36, he says, I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you because and cause you to walk in my statutes. So there's this promise that not just the external law written on stones, that won't be the final uh, draft. There's going to be a draft that's going to be written on hearts of flesh. And that really is Paul's transformation here as he moves through Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 3. So there are these promises looking forward of a new heart and the resident Holy Spirit who's never going to leave, who will record God's righteous demands upon the heart of each believer, a spiritual document that's never going to fade and it's never going to be broken. And, and the power of the Holy Spirit to obey that law. Paul says, this is the ministry that I've been given. This is the one I'm confident in doing. Why? Now look at 2 Corinthians, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, such confidence we have, look at your copy of God's word, such confidence we have through Christ towards God, verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a, mark this, this is where he draws attention to the ministry of the gospel. He calls it the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he's moving his thoughts to, he says, I'm confident, not because I can do anything on my own, because we looked at this insufficiency as a key to being useful to God. So Paul's confident, though, not because he brings anything to the table, but just because he is confident in the gospel and its ministry that he's giving out to do what the Lord wants it to do. And, and the boldness that Paul has isn't pride, and the confidence he has isn't haughtiness. Paul says, I don't think anything is coming from me. You know, I don't consider anything, verse 6, as coming from ourselves, but that doesn't mean nothing's happening, right? I mean, Verse 5 says, but our adequacy is from God. So once you get to a certain point, like Paul, you know, verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ towards God. I'm absolutely certain, Paul says, uh, that God has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Paul says he made us adequate. Ekenosin, aorist active indicative. Past action, present reality. God qualified us. He equipped us with spiritual gifting, empowered, uh, empowered him through the indwelling spirit and gave Paul a disability to remind him to remi rely on God. And Paul knows this and he knows he's nothing special and he and all those that follow the master this way just know that they're just servants of a new covenant. That's the scope of their confidence. See, they have been qualified to be diaconos, servants. They've been qualified to be table waiters, ministers, the very thing that God promised so long ago. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Not, on the, not, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, he said, but the spirit gives life. Servants of a new covenant. God is keeping his promises, like he always does. So he's doing this, and he knows that we are nothing but attendants, table waiters, ministers. But now his attention is on this marvelous nature of the gospel that he serves. And that's really his shift. He's going to show this distinction between this old covenant and the new covenant. And this is something special. Now, in, in, in 13 verses that we just read just a minute ago, we see the word glory used 13 times. Perhaps you just read that and just, every time you get to the sentence, you say, what is he talking about? You know, because he just keeps getting with this word glory. And so he referenced the gospel and he says, he uses the glory to reference the gospel 13 times. And then he knows it's something special. Uh, and we see the word ministry used five times, a ministry of the gospel. And he knows it's, this is something special. So in verse 12, he says this, look at 2 Corinthians 3.12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. So in other words, just to start with, see, it, it's uh, in our introductory time for this new section. It would seem important that if the word glory is mentioned 13 times in 13 verses, that I think that's Paul's emphasis, wouldn't you say? And so it's not hard to pick that out as you work your way through. And, and it's not hard to pick out really the key idea, which is verse 12, which is this is the confidence that we have. This, this glory in this new covenant is the confidence that we have great boldness that this is the way we're supposed to do it and God is working this through us. And so we can kind of, kind of break the passage down that way and start saying, okay, these things are important, so let's look at them. So we've seen this word before. We've talked about glory before. We've talked about the glory of the Lord before. It is the Greek noun doxa. It's, it's not just talking about an outward splendor. 
So when you think about when he says with glory and all that, just don't, I mean, it's like calling something beautiful. It's not like that, okay? I mean, if you think about the word beautiful, it's kind of hard to describe it, right? So, I mean, if someone doesn't know the word, then you would have to go around explaining something that's pleasing to the eye or to the other senses. And, and going around from place to place and giving examples of what is and isn't beautiful to you, a very subjective in, in, uh, in many ways. But the word glory is not like that. So don't think it's like, it's, it's lovely or something like that. That's not what Paul's intent is. Biblically, when we see this word, we need to know that it has as its root the Shekinah of God. When you, when you see the word glory as it refers to the gospel or any of God's attributes, you're talking about the Shekinah of God. That's the localized presence of God the Father. That's a coined Hebrew term, meaning he caused to dwell. We see that very clearly in, in Psalm 26, verse 8. It says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place, mark this, where your glory dwells. That's where the Hebrews began to pick up and coin this phrase Shekinah. It's where the glory of God dwells. And the Lord's Shekinah glory has dwelt in the Holy of Holies of Israel in the past. So a localized display of some portion of God's attributes. That's his glory. This is what we need to think about when we, think, uh, when we see this word that Paul uses 13 times in 13 verses. It's a proper understanding of that word then that's going to help make, uh, make some sense of this passage. God's glory, and, and this is no small thing, beloved. Um, Psalm 24, verse 8 says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. So glory, God's localized uh, presence, because God is incorporeal, he doesn't have a body, so he has this glory, that the glory of his attributes shine and we see this numerous times in the Old Testament over and over again. And so understand that's, that's the relation that we have. Every time we see glory, we need to be thinking about, okay, well, how does that relate to God's attributes? Because that's where we're headed. Psalm 19 verse, 19 verse 1 says, says this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. What's that mean? One of my favorite passages. It means his creation is always telling us something. Every time you look around... The creation is telling you something. It tells us with sunrises, it tells us with sunsets, with clouds and planets and solar systems and galaxies. It's constantly displaying some of the attributes of God. It's displaying his wisdom, it's displaying his understanding, his order, his majesty, his power, his creativity. And because he is God, every one of those attributes is perfect. So he has perfect wisdom, perfect understanding, perfect order, perfect majesty, perfect power, perfect creativity. That is the glory that is God's. He is the king, David said, of glory. So the glory of God is all of that in perfection. King David expresses this understanding so succinctly in Psalm 29, verse 1 through 9. He says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The Lord of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. And Syrian, that's Mount Hermon, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer calve and strips the forest bare and his temple, in his temple, everything, everyone says, everything says what? Glory. So David just kind of wraps up some of this marvelous attributes of the Lord and just says, and when the Lord gets done doing all of this, Everything in his temple says glory. What does he mean? Just that everything the Lord does, he does that in perfection. And so whatever is done by the Lord manifests some portion of his attributes, and all his attributes are perfect. And when they're on display, that is God's glory. And all of his plans are perfect, and when they're followed, that is for God's glory, which is manifesting then the perfections of God. So as a footnote then, as you think about that and just start to get your mind right, and I hope this is a, a very encouraging time in the Word for you, as you reevaluate re perhaps the Lord's position and ours, but as you think about that, just these little things that we just got through saying, 
People say, I want to live my life to glorify God. I want to do this ministry to glorify God. We're doing this ministry to glorify God. It's thrown around all the time. But really, if you want to live your life to bring glory to God, then you'll spend it desiring and attempting to make his attributes and his plans the primary focus of your life. I mean, it's not really just out there nebulous where you can just define it yourself. I'm going to, I'm going to glorify God by doing this. Well, you can qualify that because to the extent that you're, you are going to bring glory to God will be to the extent that you spend your time desiring and attempting to make his attributes and his plans and his prime, the primary focus of your life. At that point, if you're attempting to do that and you understand God's uh, attributes and you're making them clear in your life, then you're bringing God glory. And anything else falls far short of that. Okay? And God's primary plan, which relates us back to this, this section that we're in now, which puts his attributes on display is to bring, beloved, salvation to fallen men and women. That is his primary plan, which brings most glory to him. And we have seen, and we'll see again, that salvation is for God's glory first and foremost. Paul says in, in, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory of God, that's no small topic. It's not an additional outcome to salvation. It is the purpose of salvation, which Paul is referring to and says God has made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. It is the purpose of salvation. It is easy to see that it is the surpassing purpose in everything, from the creation to salvation to the mundane things of life, and even when men receive condemnation, which we're going to see in our passage, it is to God's glory. That helps us to kind of break this passage down because in verses 7 and 9, Paul makes these, Paul makes these statements. And perhaps they didn't seem, they didn't seem uh, consistent with you to you about God. But I would propose to you, perhaps, listen to verse 7. It says, uh, in fact, you can look at 2 Corinthians 3, 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone came with glory. And then verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation has Glory, both of those things now have glory. So those passages could be hard to understand if we don't understand them in the context of God's attributes. People will say, you mean there's, there's a ministry of death that came with glory? You mean uh, ministry and condemnation that came with glory? Yes. When people received the law that God had set as the standard for holiness that no man could keep, that put God's holiness on display, and that's part of his glory, didn't it? This is God's holiness, and it was established now, and then here's man who can't reach it. And when people receive judgment from God for their sin in hell, ultimately is to the glory of God. Why? Because part of God's glory is his law and his justice. There's a passage that I want you to look at briefly, and then we'll begin to wrap up our, our uh, introductory time today. Don't think we're almost done because we're not, okay? Um, but this passage really sums up all the things we've talked about concerning God's glory, um, which are just the marvelous virtues of God. And the passage is found in, in Romans 11, verse 33. Would you look there? Romans eleven thirty-three, 33. And this passage really sums up these things we've talked about concerning God's glory, which are the marvelous virtues of God. And the reason I love the passage so much is because it takes these virtues and attempts to plumb the depths of some of them. And I think it makes a great segue into, into our uh, section of passage that we're looking at. So Romans 11.33, and I'll put it on the screen too so you can kind of follow along because it's going to break down some of these things and I hope that it's as enriching to you as it was to me in my own personal study as I went through this. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Verse 34, who, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Verse 35, Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Now let's just go back and just take some time and break that down because I think it's very, it's very encouraging to us both to know these things and to bring them to the table as we look at the ministry of condemnation, as we look at this, uh, this ministry of judgment, uh, ministry of death, and, the, and this marvelous ministry of the gospel that Paul says the Lord has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. So look at that first sentence where Paul expresses really a general statement followed by a more specific one. He says, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That first word is simply Paul really exclaiming, Oh, like, wow. You know, when you see something amazing, you, you have some way of expressing that. But that's Paul doing that. And that's the depths, he says. That's the bathos. That's an adjective. 
and our subject is God. So if you think about depth, and if you're a note taker, you can jot this down. That's the dimensions of the scope of the activities that God would have. The, oh, the depth. And then we're just thinking about how deep these things, the scope of the activities that God would have. And the words used in, in 1 Corinthians 2.10, it gives us the right context. It's a noun form. It says this, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even, here it is, the depths of God. So again, it's implied that there are huge depths, and the Spirit himself is the only one who can plumb those depths. But God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. And then again, it's implied in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. He says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Again, um, it's a depth that's God-sized, plumbing out a God-sized depth. So then Paul says in verse 33, look back there if you would, uh, Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depth of the riches, the plutos, the noun, the fullness, oh, the depth of the abundance. Plenitude is another word that can be used there. So the idea is, part of God's glory is, and everything that we're going to look at today has to do with God's perfections, uh, his glorious perfections, his attributes that are in perfection. So part of the God's glory is that there is a God-sized abundance of riches. And, and as they apply here, we know that Paul's thinking first of redemption, the riches of mercy and grace, because he spent uh, the, la the previous 10 chapters talking about that very thing. Everybody getting to the same point in condemnation and then uh, showing what has come through Christ, that God has given through Christ. But there's certainly more there than we can imagine yet, and the scriptures indicate that there are wonderful, uncomprehended, or at least unrealized, at this point, riches, which would certainly apply here. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, which you see at the bottom of the screen, or do you think lightly of the, here it is, riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? These are all attributes of God, kindness and tolerance and patience. They are God's glory. So God, in, in incorporeal form, in, in shining Shekinah, part of that is what? His kindness and tolerance and patience. And they lead us to salvation, which is for the praise of his glory. Romans chapter 9, verse 23, very interesting passage again, makes it very clear. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God endured sinfulness with patience, that's a perfect attribute again to his glory, in order to show mercy, again a perfect attribute, and his glory, in order to bring about salvation, which is for his glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 I pray that the eyes of your hearts be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What God has planned for his saints is for his glory. Whatever stands out in the future for those who love the Lord, uh, as they enjoy those things throughout all eternity, that is God's glory in perfection. See? It takes us away from a human-centered church service, doesn't it? Or a human-centered worship time. I didn't really like the worship today, you know. It's it kind of, we're off time or whatever. I think you missed the whole purpose. We're worshiping you, all right? We're worshiping someone else whose glory is all of his perfections, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Did we just read that? 118. 2 verse 7, so that the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Salvation shows the attribute of God's kindness. You know, and this kindness is riches in God-sized abundance. See, that's how you can think about that. When you see, you know, the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ, just think about God-sized depth and God-sized riches of kindness. That's God's perfection, kindness. That's to his glory. Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You can see in this passage, this letter to the Ephesians, Paul was making sure they understood who, this, who all of this was for and what it revealed about the God that we serve. See, Really tapping, if you will, the well of the riches of God's attributes, he allows men to be strengthened through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, verse 27. To whom... God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is future glory for God that occurs as a result of people coming to faith in this 
mystery that's not been made re revealed in the Gentiles. And, and you can see one of the ways the Holy Spirit carried along the biblical writers is to help us understand the glory of God. The attributes of God displayed in perfect imperfection is to call them the riches of his glory. So Paul, Paul's exclamation at the beginning, oh, the depth of the riches in Romans 11.33 is understandable. God is rich in kindness and tolerance and patience. It's to his glory, which is to say that God is rich in glory. God is rich in grace. God is rich in inheritance in the saints. God is surpassingly rich in grace and kindness. God is rich in unfathomable riches in Christ. God is rich in the supply of all your needs. God is rich in the glory of the gospel. See, these are all his perfections for which is his glory, and we worship him for them. See, And this is the depth and the riches that is the expression in, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. See, God has both of these in the most untapped, catch this, God has most of these, wisdom and knowledge, just to summarize that passage, God has both of these attributes in the most untapped and fullest excellence. God has those. Wisdom and knowledge, the most untapped and fullest excellence. What part of God's character is untapped and beyond calculation? Well, frankly, all of it, right? But Paul says here, you know, and, and, and all of those attributes in their untapped and fullest excellence is the glory of God. But here Paul focuses on two, which I think are so marvelous. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom, the Sophia, the application of facts, uh, directing all things to the best end, and the knowledge, the gnosis. So this is, is the fact, knowing the end and all the issues involved. He has wisdom, that's the application of fact, and he has knowledge, which is, is the fact, knowing the end and the issues in the middle and the issues at the end. He knows all the facts, and he knows then the application of those facts. So Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches. Then he focuses on these two things, these untapped in their fullest excellence, wisdom and knowledge of God. And we understand that, see? God has both in fullest excellence. He has all the facts. He knows the end and the issues involved. He directs all these things to their best end. God has infinite capacity to know and an infinite capacity to apply the knowledge. Can you grasp a mind around that? I mean, I had to read that, and I've taught this passage before. And I, today, this week, I read that again and again. He, God has an infinite capacity to know and an infinite capacity to apply the knowledge. And man, when I think about some of my responses to the Lord in the situations of my life, I am ashamed. There is nothing that God doesn't know and everything works according to his plan. Now look at the last part of verse 33 where Paul unpacks this thought and further, and you can read it and you can really get the feeling of the Shekinah is right here, okay? So he says this, or the depth of both, of, of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, here he says, how unsearchable an extra unatos, that's an adjective, a compound word, obviously. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And so that unsearchable is, is in the negative, so it's ah, and then uh, out, ek, and then erunato, uh, a search or, exam, or, or examine. So it's a word associated with a dog sniffing to get a scent. That's the idea. And, and this is in the negative. So the idea is, in its context, men are not able to get on the scent or search out or examine to understand God's cremas, God's degree, decrees, whether of mercy, whether of judgment, whatever it is that we saw earlier in our passage, see? Because that's the next word. How unsearchable are his cremas, his judgments. That usually has to do with a, a sentence uh, a judge passes down. So if you will, there's an unsearchability that's part of the glory of God, an unsearchability, an unable to get on the scent of his judgments the things he passes down. So, and we, again, we have that in a negative connotation. And that, and ministry, and certainly that, and that applies to our, our passage that we're introducing. The ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, for those on whom he has not shown mercy, to those who are willfully disobedient, to those who won't obey the gospel, all different ways to say it. But it appears in this context, it's just whatever God hands down, judgments, part of God's glory. So God has judgments and God has ways. So how unsearchable are his judgments? So you can't get on the scent of the things he's going to hand down because he alone understands all knowledge and all the wisdom application of all the facts, okay? So how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways, his hudos, you know, a traveler way, a journey in its verb form, traveling. Metaphorically, of course, it's a conduct, a manner of thinking, feeling, deciding. It can be used to refer to a procedure. So 
how unsearchable are his judgments and his procedures, God's procedures. Had it ever occurred to you that God probably has procedures that he follows? You know, where do you think we got that idea anyway? You know, that we can organize things in order to make them go more fluidly, right? They, they could have procedures to follow to help us think through the whole thing and make sure we're, we're, we're attacking the correct problem and we're fixing the correct problem. We have procedures to go through, you know. But here it actually says, unsearchable are his judgments and then his ways, which is that word, a uh, Greek word for procedures, his MO, if you will. God's MO is part of his glory. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways, his MO, it's part of his glory. So to put it together, think back to judgments. God renders judgments that are unsearchable so you can't find the trail. And God has ways of travel or manners of thinking or procedures that are, here it is, past finding out. That modifies ways. It's an adjective. So again, negative is ah, ek for out, and ichnos, track or a footstep. It's associated with this trail that's left behind when somebody passes through. So he has unsearchable judgments so you can't get on the send of what god's gonna god's gonna do or what he's gonna say and then he has ways he has procedures that are past finding out see they don't leave a track in other words it's also in the negative so the idea in context is men are not able to find the trail or trace the footprints of god that's hudos god's paths his procedures and he makes everything work according to his plan the psalmist and Psalm 77, 19 said it this way, in speaking about God's plan through Egypt and delivering the people, he says this, he says, um, your way was in the sea and your path in the mighty waters, your footprints may not be known. Ever try to track something through water? No sign of where it went. So the words unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The statement appears to be in parallel or for impact purposes. So in other words, whatever God does, whatever his judgments, whatever his final verdicts, whatever his procedures, whether in mercy or in hardening, whether of breaking or of grafting in, these are the perfections of God, see? This is how God works in this marvelous plan of salvation, which Paul says God has made us adequate to give out a minister of this new covenant. And part of that, the ways that are past finding out is this mystery of the new covenant, this mystery of the gospel. The Lord has made clear to Paul is his ministry and has equipped him to do. But of all the other impacts and of life to life and of death to death and all the things that go on and being the fragrance of Christ, both to God and to everybody around, this is the Lord working out his tracks. And we can't, we don't fathom that, Paul says. We're not able to track on that. He works his way out as he sees fit. And whatever it is, these matters are accomplished by God who keeps his own counsel. And that's exactly where Paul goes next through two rhetorical questions. He, he uses the scriptures to show what should already have been known. So look back at, with me at Romans chapter 11, verse 34. It says this, For who has known the mind of God, or, have, or who became his counselor? And, and here we have Paul quoting, so using that base we just got through saying, you know, Hey, listen, his procedures you don't know. You can't get on the scent of what he wants to do. You don't know why he hands down what he hands down, but he has procedures he follows, but you're not going to be able to sniff them out, see? And then he moves on to this, and he says, for who has known the mind of God and who became his counselor? So two rhetorical questions, uh, no one and nobody, okay? So we know that's the answer because Paul just got through saying everything he just got through saying. So and here we have Paul quoting from a number of places, a counselor, sumbulos, Sum together and bule advise. So who's the co-advisor? Who is a counselor together, if you would, with God? That's kind of an awkward place to be in, right? I mean, who's God's co-counselor? Well, you would think we would if you measured out our prayers that we were God's co-counselor, right? That's the same place Job ended up trying to fill, wasn't it? Job responded to him and said, you know, God responded to Job and said in Job 38, verse 2, who is this darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, I know you're trying to give me counsel, God says, but you don't have any knowledge to back it up. You're speaking foolishness. And yet, we continue to do exactly the same thing, beloved, when we question the Lord, don't we? When we doubt his compassion, or we doubt his faithfulness, or, or his judgment. Instead of praising him for his glory, expressed in those things in perfection, you know, we, um, we doubt him. And these are no small accolades brought to bear, beloved, as we've said before. This is no small thing, the glory of God. 
Paul uses the word 13 times in our passage. Because of the marvelous tension that defines all of human history, did, did Paul understand how God leads us in victory, making us the fragrance of Christ to the world and to God himself? No. How, how the word could be life to life or death to death? No. Nobody found his sufficiency in God's faithfulness to accomplish all his will, which is to his own glory. See? Paul didn't have to, he didn't have to parse all of that out, did he? He had to discern, okay, was this life to life for them or death to death? Which was, which was it? He'd have to concern himself with those details because God took care of those details, see? He just said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my grace is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll rather glory in my, in my weakness that the power of Christ may rule in me, may be visible, see? It's a very common theme in the Word of God. Isaiah 40, verse 13, who has directed, who has directed the God or, that's uh, been mis- uh, translated, who has directed the, uh, God or has been his counselor or informed him? No one, no one has. Job 15, verse 7, Eliphaz is accusing Job, mocking Job's wisdom. He says, were you the first man to be born or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? In other words, do you get to sit in with all God's brainstorming sessions and contribute to the pool of knowledge? You know, and of course, Eliphaz got himself in big trouble for accusing Job that way. But the idea is the same. Who, who is God's counsel? Who has, who has known the mind of God? Or who has become God's counsel? And certainly not Job. And Job got uh, chastened by the Lord fairly severely there at the end of the book. And a part of the perfection of God is that he doesn't need advice, beloved, and we can't set in counsel with him as equals. That's part of his perfection. See? We, we don't have that option. Remember Paul quoted the same idea in 1, in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says this, for who has known the mind of God that he will instruct him? And then this wonderful addition, but we have the mind of Christ. And we understand that last phrase from Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who, a spirit of humility and not grasping after equality, a spirit of trust that God will accomplish his will and do all of his own purposes, see? Coupled with the knowledge of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which produces faith to receive those marvelous things. And then Paul uses another rhetorical question to drive his point home. Move on to verse 35 of chapter 11 of Romans. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And this third question really changes and it really deals with resources other than intellectual resources. So you're not a co-counselor with God. You're not going to sit along in there and contribute to the pool of knowledge in any way. And Paul's really quoting from Job 41.11. He says, who has given to me that I should repay him? Uh, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Who was first given to him, prodidomi, it's a verb, pro before, didomi to give. Uh, the word is found only right here. Be paid back to him again. Ante of, or in place of, appropriate, apo, taken out. So the idea is, and didomi to give, the idea that is that the created being is not given God anything beforehand. The part of the perfection of God is that he owes no one anything this is part of the glory of God. He's completely self-contained and there is no obligation on God's part. He owes us nothing. And the principle is expressed very well in David's prayer from uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this for all things come from you? Mark this, beloved, a beautiful statement. As you think about, as you worship the Lord and what you have, material uh, things that you give to the Lord, Keep this in mind, okay? This is a marvelous passage. We're going to look at this as we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But just think about this. David says, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? That's when David collected for the building of the temple, and it was an overabundance of gifts, more than they needed. The Lord said, tell the people to stop. You have enough. For all things come from you, and then mark this, from your hand we have given to you again. You get that? That's a beautiful part of the glory of God. Everything comes from God. And David said, it's from your hand that we've given to you. Everything that we have, that we gave back, belonged to you anyway. Even when we give back to him, it comes from him first. God uses it of Job 2,000 years before Paul's time. God gives it to Moses. And the same idea, the earth is mine and everything in it. Exodus 5, 1,500 years before Paul. The earth is mine and everything in it. David uses it 1,000 years before Paul. uses it here that we just read. Just drives the principle home, see? 
Now, how does Paul end this praise time? He just builds on what he's already said. God, God has a depth of richness and in wisdom and knowledge that are infinite. That's his glory. God has an infinite capacity to know, an infinite capacity uh, to apply that knowledge, and both are beyond human understanding, and that is his, his perfections. See, that's part of his Shekinah. His judgments and his ways are unsearchable, past finding out. That's what it says. Men can't find the track. Men can't sniff out the trail God uses. It's not that the things that are not known are a problem for Paul. See, it's not even the things that God hasn't revealed to him yet. It's, it's the thing, and catch this, beloved, it's the things that have already been explained. Paul under already, already heard them from the Lord, see. If you follow them far enough, you're going to realize that you can't reach them from here with our thimble full of knowledge. Paul wasn't talking about stuff God hadn't said yet. He wouldn't even know what that would be or where even to start. Paul's relying on what God had already told him. And he said, listen, we can't sniff out this trail. We follow this long enough and we're going to get to the point where you are sovereign and you're making decisions according to your own will for your own glory. See? And I think that's the right perspective as we come into difficult passages, particularly as we refer to God's glory, that we just say, okay, you know, I can be like Paul. I'm going to say, you know, I can just understand and accept by faith because the Holy Spirit's there that these things are true, but I don't necessarily understand the end of all of those things and how they play out. But I don't have to, see. And Paul says, listen, God has made me sufficient to be a servant of the new covenant. I'm just a servant. I, I didn't bring anything to the table. I'm just taking what God gives. I'm bringing it to the table and I try not to mess it up in between. See. You know, Paul... I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about stuff I don't know yet. I don't even know what that would be. I'm talking about stuff I know. No one sits with God in brainstorming sessions and contributes to the pool of knowledge. You know, God doesn't owe anyone anything as part of his perfection. See, his favor, his mercy, his choices are never owed to any human being. They're never earned by any human being. They're never given as payment for something from God that somehow somebody gave to God and then now it's returned back as a recompense. And then Paul's carried along to make this summary statement, which is where we're going to start to wrap up and kind of tie back and end. And, and this is so wonderful in this introductory section. Uh, three prepositional phrases that are amazing when they're connected to the verb and the subject. And at verse, verse uh, 36, it says this. Look there, if you would. Uh, Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the originator, that's for from him. He is the sustainer, and through him, and he is the goal and the focus and the end and to him of everything, all things, ta panta. Perfection just means the totality, all things, and that scope is amazing. Can you get your mind around all of that? It can refer to the universe, it can refer to the whole of creation, it can refer to all things concerning salvation. Certainly that is included, as we've noted. And here at the end, it's just obvious now, isn't it, that in light of all his perfections, to him be glory forever. Amen. Everything God does, he does for his own what? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So everything God does, he does for his own. What's the word? Glory. That's right. Everything God does, he does for his own glory. I think it's just obvious from the passages this morning, and that's a wonderful thing to think about. God's glory is this overarching purpose in everything. Creation, salvation, condemnation, reconciliation, judgment, everything, even to the mundane things of life. And for us personally, beloved, that fact that he has ordered history and providence and circumstance and time and eternity and everything that is to come together to provide for redemption for his own glory is cause for an expression of wonder and of giving thanks. And that's exactly what Paul did. Paul says, God's made me sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. And for that, I just, you know, from him and through him and to him are all things. Paul's not drawing attention to himself. See? To him be the glory forever. And then Paul says, amen. So be it. So should it be forever. Supreme glory belongs to God forever. It's in the plural form. So into the ages is the best way to understand it. To him be glory into the ages forever, for all eternity. Paul uses that glory word 13 times in our passage. Now I want to make sure we have the right reference for it. 
Let's talk about, we're not just talking about something that appears beautiful. That's such a small little portion of it. It is true. It's amazing. But that's not what he's talking about. And so I want to make sure we come into that as we look at 13 times in our passage, this glory that we talk about that belongs to the Lord. It's God's perfect attributes on display. This is what we need to think about when we see this word that Paul uses so often. A proper understanding of that word helps us understand the passage. God's glory, no small thing. That's really what we're going to look at, the unfading glory of the gospel. Let's, um, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. A few announcements and we'll be done for today. A number of things going on afterwards. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for uh, all of us together today that we could break open your word and look at it and be enriched by it and certainly um, couldn't even just catch part of what we read and not be, not be encouraged, not be humbled, not be enriched, not be brought to praise in our own hearts as I'm sure occurred many times today because your word is so amazing and you are so amazing beyond our understanding, our comprehension. We can't sniff out those paths and understand those proclamations. And yet you still have made us sufficient for this ministry of the gospel. And so, Father, we're grateful that we can just be a part of it and that you have planned it all out. And even in this old covenant and the giving of the law and the tablets of stone was to your glory. It was to your glory that Israel was grafted out temporarily and the church grafted in to your glory. To your glory that Israel will be grafted back in again for your glory that you'll give Israel a heart of flesh with your word written on it and the indwelling Holy Spirit to make them capable of obeying it, just like you've done to the church. So, Father, as we think about all these things, as we think about this, this ministry that, that God has entrusted uh, to us and that we understand from Paul's example, we understand that we don't have to understand all of those things. We just have to understand that you're sufficient to carry them all out. Explaining the gospel clearly, presenting what you've done through Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of all men, for his death, substitutionary death, and then his resurrection by your power, proving he had power over death, a sinless life that he lived. Claiming Christ as our Savior, confessing him as Lord, is the way of salvation because you've accomplished all these marvelous things in your own ability for your own glory. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll be revitalized again both in our worship Time spent in your word, how important if you've magnified your word equal to your own name and your glory is, in, is your perfections of your attributes. How, how important is it then, Father, should we be drawn to it each day? Help us to be drawn back to it, not in some kind of guilt or obligation, but because we know that you hold the words of life. Where then shall we go if we don't go there, as your disciples said so long ago? And so, Lord, help us to seek it. And Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way as if we want to bring glory to you by our life and seeking out then your purposes and your plans and your attributes and making them clear through what we do and say. In that respect, we bring glory to your name because we magnify that those things are the most important things. And Lord, help us to be those kinds of people. It's the very practical ways that we can apply what you said, what you mean by what you say, and how they apply. But we thank you for all who have served downstairs. We thank you for um, the things that are going on there with our children. Thank you for the faithfulness of people. Thank you for uh, many who showed up yesterday physically gave up Saturdays and labored hard to uh, just get things, some things done. I'm grateful for all of those things and for all the ministry needs that are met, as, as I know our folks are attending to each other's needs, as we've seen over and over again, which is really proving to be us to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God as we attend to one another. Thank you for all the attending that goes on on a regular weekday that flies under the radar nobody knows except you. pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you for him. We long to see him. Help us be found in the ways that we see in the word until we see him again. We pray this in the name of, his, of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.